Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Uh, Sorry, I gotta clear my throat. Still got like some COVID germs in there, probably. Okay, a couple of items here at the top. Uh, The first thing I want to say is if you like this podcast, please support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash strangers in China. For as low as three bucks a month, less than a cup of coffee, you can support the show and get access to unreleased content. Next month, I'm going to release some stories that were amazing, but just didn't quite make the cut for this series. If you really like this pod and you want to support the endless work that goes into this, you can pledge 10 bucks which in this economy is just like two cups of coffee per month. And that really helps and really encourages me to get this stuff done in a timely manner. So anyway, uh, that's patreon.com forward slash strangers in China. Another way you can support the pod is you can go to our website, strangersinchina.com, and you can get some merch. Get a sweatshirt for your favorite strangers fan. Get a bumper sticker to spread the word about how great this podcast is. Anyway, that's my financial plea. I won't bother you guys again. Let's get on with the show. Let's start by just putting out a warning here. This episode contains disturbing audio. We're delving into things like child abuse and animal abuse and suicidal ideation. So if you're really not feeling up to this, just sit this one out or wait till later. It's it's an upsetting episode for sure. This is part two of a four-part series, uh, and this episode does build on some of the stuff from the last episode. So if you haven't listened to the last episode, just go back in the feed and, and uh, have a listen. Anyway, enjoy. Uh, lockdown Journal, April 6th, 2022. Okay, so I need to just kind of take it all in, clamp it all down, okay? Put on a good face. There's no sense in getting hysterical in this 
like really bad situation. I just need to breathe and move past it. If I let it all like catch up to me, it's just gonna like bring me down. Just keep pushing forward. That's what you do, Clay. If you let it all sink in, it's going to derail everything and you're gonna have a total meltdown. Just turn off that part of your brain that, that the processes all the despair of it all. Just push forward. Just live in it. Live in that moment and just keep going because all of the stuff about this lockdown is going to get you down. If you let it all catch up to you, you're going to crash. Okay? Just have to outrun that wave, you know? <sighs> that wave of despair. It, it might be like, you know, growing and getting faster and nipping at your heels, but you just got to like dig in deeper and push forward and go faster. Okay? Don't let it... Don't let it come crashing over you. Just keep smiling and fight through. Yes, it's been a shitty day, but just keep going. Okay? All right. Lockdown, part two, the eclipse. Okay, it is day one of our quote-unquote five-day lockdown. Uh, news so far is that lots of places in Pudong are still locked down for an indeterminate amount of time. They're basically, we're saying, like, if, you, if there are any COVID cases on your street, then you are continuing to lock down which is just so ridiculous because like every street has COVID. So here I am in the first day of lockdown. The day that we were locked down here on my side of the river, here in Pushi, was the day that they were supposed to get out of lockdown in Pudong, but that didn't happen. Anyway, oh, they're knocking on the door. So we gotta go answer. The first thing that you learn is that you are not entitled to your private time. At any given moment, someone can knock on your door and disrupt whatever the hell you're doing. Lila! This is Gen IE. Yeah, so this would happen all the time. We would just, throughout the day, have somebody banging on our door to tell us some news, to tell us to go to the COVID test to tell us to do whatever. At this point in the lockdown, the very early days, I was wary of Jen Ai. I only knew her as this intrusion in my life, somebody who would bang on my door. Sorry, woman, Okay. I asked Ms. Jen if I could at least take my dog out to go pee but she told me it's not allowed and that I should only leave the house to go get my COVID test. Now, because we're on the ground level, we actually have a little garden in back of our apartment. So we'd let BB out to pee out there. But for most people with dogs, this was the time of teaching your dog to do its business inside of your apartment. All right, we're out for our allotted time to go get our test. We brought our dog against uh, against the w wishes of the people, but it doesn't seem like they care that the dogs are coming, so. You can hear that megaphone in the background. 
That's Shanghai's collective soundtrack of this lockdown. <laughs> In those early days, tests were really awful. As the lockdown raged on, we actually did our tests within our Xiaochu, but at the beginning, there was only one testing site on each block. So an entire block of people, not just one compound, would all be lined up to get their tests. You would have to stand in line for sometimes over an hour. When it came to getting the test, you would open an app on your phone, usually the Alipay app. You'd open it to like the health code function which was connected to all your relevant personal info. And they would scan it and then give you your test. This is how they were tracking who had cases and who needed to be carted away to the Fang Tang, you know, the COVID camps. So I was just on Weibo looking at the reactions that people are having about the lockdowns here in Shanghai and the reactions from the Pudong side, there's so many people who are just still like so upset, so angry. Most people are just sort of like, yo, we're still locked down. Five days are over, but we're still locked down. So I don't see a lot of hope for us getting out of here after five days. I don't know. I don't know when this is going to be over. For all of the misery of those first couple days of lockdown, the early part of lockdown wasn't so bad. At the end of my last episode, I think I left off with a lot of ominous foreboding. But honestly, when it all popped off, when we were finally in our big city-wide lockdown on April 1st, nothing really happened. I'm not exactly sure what I expected to happen, but those first few days felt so anticlimactic. You know, I would just kind of hang out, do some work. I spent a lot of time petting the dog. Oh, you could hear him snorfling on the microphone. Oh, you're so cute. Aside from that, I guess I would spend time with Elizabeth and I would do some working out. <sighs> In the evenings, we'd video call with our friends. Cucumber, right? Oh, no. Yeah, that's a cucumber. It's a cucumber. Oh, it is cucumber. The only thing that we had on our mind was the lockdown, so we talked about that ad nauseum. You've got a very nice, like, salad selection. That's really good. There were more strange interruptions from our building volunteer. Oh, what the hell? Yeah. You don't want to know. She said, you're very beautiful. The first inkling that I might actually like Jen Ai, our building volunteer, is when she started giving me the unofficial sort of news of the compound. Stuff she probably wasn't supposed to be talking about, but she would tell me anyway. Should she... She was telling me here that they had found a case in Building 17. Jen Ai, she's a little cheeky. I don't know if she was supposed to be telling me this, but I loved her little unofficial reports that she'd give me. Finally, after a few days, we got our first government supplies. The building volunteers and the garbage man, Mr. Lee, would help distribute these huge bags of supplies to all of us. I could always tell when we were about to get a drop 
because I could hear the commotion of the people and the volunteers shuffling to get all of our stuff all through the neighborhood. I honestly was pretty impressed with the rations that the government gave us. Especially in those early days, the amount of stuff we got was incredible. They gave us some pretty good food. Vegetables, meat, and grains. All right, we got our vegetables, and we got, what do we got? What's this? A large cabbage. Wow. A <laughs> big old big carrot. Oh, four potatoes. Four potatoes. That's pretty good. All right, not bad. And go get the meat. Also, once these food rations started being distributed throughout the neighborhood, the Xiaochu got pretty relaxed about their enforcement of the lockdown. Now, the guard would stop us if we were trying to leave our Xiaochu, but we could walk around within the walls and talk to our neighbors. These early days of lockdown, man, it was like a weird vacation from reality. It was definitely like the most locked down that we were, but it was probably the least difficult. The novelty of the feeling of being locked in hadn't worn off. During the days themselves, I was certainly stressed and feeling terrible in lots of ways, but in hindsight, these were the easy days. Nothing like what was to come. So it is April 4th, and uh, just received word that we are, our lockdown, which was supposed to end tomorrow, is extended till further, further notice. I just found that out. No real surprise there, but no mention as to when the lockdown will be over. This is when we started to hear some of the tricklings of weird things going on. People just not acting right. Lockdown had started to get to people. This is my friend Charlie. I noticed that there are people building up the fences. The fences you've seen on social media, on news. It's happening in my compound. 15 minutes later, I heard some noises like from the outside. And I went up, went to my balcony to see what's going on. And I saw this middle-aged man started like tearing down those fences by himself, one by one, barehanded. And he would climb up on those fences and start kicking, j just trying to get them down. And he finished all of them. My friend Yang Yang reported that someone in her building just was not doing well. And there was one night I was taking out the trash. And when I went back to the building, I literally just saw this girl with a backpack and she was yelling at the guard. And the guard wasn't doing anything. He was just sort of sitting there eating his dinner. And I think they are fighting or she's fighting with him because he asked her, where are you going? And that was just a question that triggered a whole thing. And she was literally wailing in our lobby. Like her voice was so hoarse that it, you couldn't even tell what she was saying anymore. She was literally like shouting from the top of her lung. The compound next to Michael's took collective action. It was a Saturday night. Uh, there's a lot of banging and noise. So me and I also noticed a lot of my neighbors started sticking our heads out the window, looking all around, trying to figure out what was going on. It was one of the buildings down the street from us, and I was able to see it from my laundry room window. There was a building about 500 meters away with a bunch of the residents on the rooftop banging pots and pans and hammering on any piece of metal they could. They weren't shouting anything, but they were clearly upset, and they were making a lot of noise about it. We all guessed that they were probably, they were protesting a lack of supplies. 
But I think the, the worst part about that whole experience is that they were making noise around dinner time. So I felt awful the fact that I was currently trying to eat while they were making noise and protesting what was likely a lack of food. After those first initial five days of this lockdown, the five days that we were promised to be in lockdown, a sense of panic started to creep in. One thing that this lockdown made me super aware of is the fact that there are these massive mobilizing shifts that happen to us collectively. Since we had little else to do but be on our phones and in constant communication with each other, we were all so hyper-connected to some larger sense of a citywide community. And so when a panic struck, it rippled around the city. The catalyst of this panic was one of our primary basic needs. I definitely did not prepare enough food because the government said it was five days. So I probably prepared around like seven days. But the thing is, they shut all the online apps um, that you can order food and they stopped the deliveries. I did not have enough food. There was a few days I think I, I went to sleep hungry. For my friend Mia, and I think for a lot of people around the city, there was a credulousness that we were only gonna be locked down for five days. That's what they told us. And if it wasn't five days, it wasn't gonna be much longer than that. So many people only prepared for five days. That was this stressful period. So like you have to try to get food at 6 a.m., yeah? And then you just have all these apps and then you just like need to keep clicking, 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 and you just end up not getting anything. So many of us had the experience my friend Iga explains here. We'd wake up as early as possible and do our best to try to secure deliveries all morning. But the infrastructure around those deliveries was so hindered by the lockdown. First of all, so often the apps themselves that you were trying to order from would crash or not accept your order because they'd already exceeded their limits. Then the other problem was there were no drivers to deliver these deliveries. So it might take days to get a delivery if you could get it at all. I ran out of cooking oil, rice, noodles, eggs, basically like nothing because they said it's going to be five days. So I prepared for five days and in the 10th day, you're like, what the f***? It was true as the lockdown went on that the government would continually send us packages of food. But because we knew we couldn't get all the items we needed, there was this huge sense that we were on our own and we had to find our own workarounds. Another reason for this is that we never knew when we would receive orders. We never knew what, what we would receive in these government ration orders. So we had to plan for ourselves. So as you know from last episode, I was really well supplied, but there was one thing that we could never get enough of, water. The government would only supply what they considered to be necessities. Drinking water was not considered one of those necessities. In Shanghai, no one drinks the tap water. The common concern is that there are harmful heavy metals in the water, so it's better to rely on bottled water. Since we knew that they wouldn't provide water for us, my daily struggle became 
procuring water. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I spent nearly an entire week only thinking about water. I looked for water. I dreamed about water. Literally, I was having this dream last night that I could walk down the street and I broke open the window of the local convenience store and I took all the water. I, I even paid for it. As I dreamed it, there it was, our corner convenience store, right outside our Shu. I knew that right before we went into this citywide lockdown, they were really well stocked with water. So I started having dreams about breaking in and stealing that water. Luckily, I didn't have to go that far. One night, I was taking a walk within the limits of my Xiaochu, and I saw that the back gate was unlocked. No one was guarding it. As sneakily as I could, I crept out the back gate and ran to the Lawson convenience store. Oh my god. Through the window, I could see the stacks of water just sitting there, but there were no lights on, and it didn't appear that anyone was in there. Just as I was walking away in despair, I saw someone moving around in the darkness of the store. I didn't miss a beat. I banged on the window and saw a weary shop clerk appear out of the darkness. He walked over and unlocked the door and poked his head out. He met me a little gruffly with a, what do you want? Water, 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 I blurted out. He nodded and told me he could give me one case of water. I told him that was fine. I'd take whatever I could get. He disappeared for a moment, then reappeared with a 24-pack of water bottles. I can't express how much relief rushed through me in that moment. <laughs> I had my hands on more water for me and my little family. But that relief quickly turned to panic as I saw red and blue lights appear from the street behind me. An angry, authoritative voice broke through the darkness. Get back to your Xiaochu immediately, the cop shouted. Oh, the despair. I was so freaking close to securing, I don't know, three or four more days of water for my family. But the cop was there. What was I going to do? No, 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 no. I wasn't going to let this opportunity slip by. I was really desperate. The cop shouted at me again. Hurry up and go home. Okay, 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 I replied. I looked the shop clerk in the eyes and I whispered, I'm going to run and hide until the cop leaves, okay? Wait five minutes and I'll be right back. He nodded. I ran back to my Xiaochu and I hid behind the gate until I saw the red and blue lights pass. The shop clerk was waiting for me. He charged me 50 renminbi for what was normally like 20 but I paid that exorbitant fee gladly and I headed home in a state of euphoria. That's not hyperbole. Water was so sacred to me that I literally nearly cried tears of joy hauling this crate home. Just went to the Lawson. I just secured four more days of water for us, so I'm really great. I'm feeling great. You know what, though? That wasn't the only little water heist that I did. I did this again and again. There was this small, you know, black market that started to develop. There was this one shop owner who lived on the ground level, and I would sneak out and he would sell me cigarettes and water out of his first floor apartment window. Got a 24-pack of waters. 
Uh, yeah, lots of and plastic it's bottle never usage. Never tasted so good. Come on, the just, cocktail. Just be be, on, be honest with me. It was a little bit heroic on my part. Yeah. Come on. It was heroic. You you're absolutely right. I've been dreaming about that loss, and it was like, hey, babe, I had a dream about that loss in last night, and I went and I got water tonight. Heroics aside, this was not a sustainable way to get water. We were drinking like two liters a day or something. At this rate, we probably only had seven days left of water and what felt like months of lockdown ahead of us. I'm not sure how it arose or how it became such a ubiquitous citywide practice, but group buying by day seven of lockdown is all we were thinking about. By this time, we'd organized the Xiaochu-wide WeChat group. From the big group chat, someone would post a subgroup that people could join. One would be called the fruit buying group or the meat buying group. I personally joined five or six of these chats. This was one of the most chaotic and infuriating points of the lockdown from a day-to-day -day perspective because it meant we were glued to our phones all day long, receiving hundreds of messages a day. I think my friend Michelle relates this experience very well. The main stress has been the f***ing WeChat messages are like non-stop. Like it's calmed down now, but that first couple of weeks was like my phone was f***ing smoking with the messages coming in. The, the mixture of, you know, you want to find out information, but you can't be bothered to go through these messages that have already got, these threads have already got 150 messages in. And, and then you see that people repeatedly ask the same question because, of course, they're asked, they're the same. Like, nobody wants to try, trawl through, like, everyone else's shit. The amount that you had to pay attention to group chats was so insane. And you really did have to pay attention. There was a day that I missed checking on the fruit buying chat. And then I saw that everybody in our Xiaochu had fruit except for us. And I was furious with myself. In these six, seven, eight groups that I was joined to, I was receiving hundreds of messages in Chinese for every single group, every single day. The process was so hectic, so mind-splitting, that on April 8th, I was close to just totally frazzled exhaustion. I would say every five seconds, literally right now, my phone is buzzing. Literally, my phone is buzzing right now. It's buzz, 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 buzz. Today's been a horrible day. I'm just, I just can't wait for the night to fall because I just imagine that once night falls a little bit, there's no, there's no way that they can deliver anything to us at, at a certain point in the night. So the texting will slow a little bit. Although there were some groups last night that I was in that literally were still going till midnight. It wasn't that we were starved. We were super lucky not to have run out of water or food or really anything that we needed. It's just that none of this was especially necessary. If we could have gotten better updates from the Jue Hui about when and what we would receive in food deliveries, we could have been a lot less frantic and wasteful in our panic buying. But this lockdown, more than anything, was freaking disorganized. So there we all were in early April, stressed beyond stressed, frantically refreshing our WeChat apps to make sure we didn't miss an order of fruit. <sighs> the one thing I worried about the most, water, finally did arrive. 
April 11th. Oh, going to get some water. All right, we're getting some bikes and we're gonna go get some water. Earlier in the week, we had put in for a giant shipment of water. As a Xiaotu, we ordered 96 crates of water. Each crate contained four five liter bottles of water for a total of 1920 liters of water we're got we got all of we got how many boxes do we have 96 boxes of water we gathered expectantly around the big delivery van parked at the entrance of our Chu to pick up all the water there were maybe 15 or 20 of us all gathered around to get the job done it's kind of fun we're having like a little community get together of lifting and carrying these huge boxes of water so it was it was really fun i mean we were pretty giddy it was like a real community building activity mr lee you know the grumpy garbage man i talked about last episode he was even out there helping us haul the water there was a guy who was perfectly bilingual managing the water carrying crowd his name was Wei Chi. I think it worked out okay, even though we're still missing two cases. But I'll we'll be sure to find them. out those we'll two cases. We'll find them, yeah. yeah. So now, now you're now the real hard work. Exactly. Begins. Exactly. You got to go find those last two, two missing cases. cases. Yeah. It turns out that he was the hero who organized this massive undertaking. So I asked him for an interview. I had to know what it was like to be one of those group organizers, because my God, what an annoying and stressful process to have to manage. My question is how did you decide that you wanted to be one of these <laughs> buy, order buying kind of people? It's, it's, it's out of necessi necessity, man. I, I was literally running out of drinking water. Uh, so, so I decided, like, okay, if no one's gonna organize it, uh, I'm just gonna do it, F it. I couldn't thank Weichi enough because as annoying as it was to have to participate in all those group buying chats, it was way, way more stressful to have to organize them. You organized, what was it like organizing the group? Ooh, uh, it's a mess. It's definitely a hot mess. Uh, not, I, I think for the water run, it was actually pretty organized, but being in sort of the, the organizers group and then participating other smaller um, sort of group buys and then in different things, various things, uh, it's just a hot mess. As, as the organizer, you gotta organizing the list and then figuring out the money. Uh, and then put down the cases. How much time every day were you putting into just the water delivery alone? Yeah, initially, in terms of organizing stage, I think I must have done two hours a day or so for two days, uh, to just because people were already uh, responding pretty fast. Uh, and then in terms of delivery, that's an extra three days. And then organizing it uh, in terms of deliveries, uh, I think that took us like in two hours, an hour and a half maybe. Yeah, uh, yeah we got a, <laughs> a good run. Weichi really went above and beyond. He was in the organizers groups and he actually was giving them strategies for how to better streamline this whole process. But I'm also participating and helping out in like other groups. So I sort of took on the, the, the uh, chief operating officer role, if you will, in the, in the, in the, yeah, in the little group that we You're, had. Honestly, you gotta write this on your resume. <laughs> honestly, I'm not even I know, right? <laughs> Did you ever feel like completely overwhelmed by the process? Oh yeah, uh, for sure. For water, it was actually okay. Um, but actually for some of the other uh, veggie groups or fruit groups, I, I think uh, the overwhelming actually comes uh, at two points. One is the initial 
there's a lot of Q&A, uh, people asking, you know, where is this from? Why is this so expensive? But we're not actually the vendor, right? We're just literally putting through the messages and be, be the in-between person. And then the second point comes in the, the sort of the distribution process and afterwards, sort of like customer support, if you will. Uh, I think some cases got lost in the community. So I just literally, someone was missing two cases. And so I just take mine. Wei Chi. This guy literally donated his own water from the order to this aggrieved party. What a good dude. The organizers of these groups are the real heroes of this lockdown. They were incredibly organized individuals who took up the mantle and put their skills from their jobs to good use to help their communities. They, along with the distributors and the delivery people, were the ones dodged these snags of lockdown and kept Shanghai fed. They're heroes to me. After the water buy, we were still always concerned. But just as fast as that wave of food anxiety came into our compound, it dissipated a few days later. We were always vigilant about procuring more food for ourselves, more water for ourselves. But it never again was as crazy as it was in those first 10 days of lockdown. We moved our sights from the most necessary stuff to more luxury items. I would punch an old lady for a banana right now. No, I wouldn't. I'm not well, there yet. I want a banana. Punch I need some friends. fruit. I would hurt myself for a banana. I'm not going to hurt other people for bananas. They were like, Clay, punch yourself in the face and we'll give you a banana. I'd be like, two? I can make a smoothie that way. Now, no one was harmed in any way in the procurement of bananas. I posted in my neighborhood watch group that I would die for a banana. And a few minutes later, there was a knock at the door. I opened it and I found a single banana wrapped in a pink bow sitting in front of my door. Anna, you know, my Russian friend that you heard from last time, had ordered a huge bunch of bananas in a group buy and she had extra. That's my neighborhood. That's Anna. We finally got our first thing that we have ordered, which is eggs, but we bought eggs this morning as well because we were worried we weren't going to get any. And now we have a comical amount of eggs and I don't really know what we're going to do with them. Any thoughts on the eggs? Quiche. <laughs> I took to the neighborhood to ask the older folks if they had any predictions about this lockdown. <laughs> Some of the older folks were optimistic, like Mr. Kong here. He's predicting that we just have just another week or so before they ease the lockdown. All the old guys were very enthusiastic to foist cigarettes on me in a show of friendship. As much relief as there was, you know, getting food and feeling more secure 
in that aspect, there were still daily struggles that we had to contend with. Those daily struggles were different from person to person. Sirem, a woman I talked to through this process, was on her own with a baby and her aging grandmother. I'm glad that I'm still breastfeeding so I don't have to worry about formula because that's almost impossible to get right now. I'm glad I have family around. Thank goodness I'm here with my grandmother. I don't know what we'd do if she was alone during lockdown. She wouldn't be able to do group buys on the internet or know how to do the self-antigen tests. I'm glad I don't test positive and I can stay, still stay at home. Everyone is worried about getting positive. Well, during this time, there were two or three days I wasn't feeling very well. I had a bit of fever and I was so worried that I could have the COVID. For those days I wasn't feeling very well, I was so worried and, and scared of being taken away. Uh, but luckily, again, I don't have it. The most stressful thing is just the, the waiting, uh, especially the waiting with no, with nothing even approaching a definite timeline. Uh, once upon a time when I was in the Marine Corps, I'd heard of some people who in a, a previous uh, military operation, yeah, they, they sent people to Kuwait and something called Operation Desert Shield and just had them sitting there indefinitely, not knowing when or if the war would begin. And apparently a, a fair few went some degree of crazy because of that, just waiting with no certain timeline uh, is, is very hard on people. I'm fine. I'm safe. I'm content. I feel awful, stressful terror. I'm fine. I'm safe. I'm content. Awful, stressful terror. Fine, safe, content, stressful terror. This is the roller coaster of lockdown. There were times that felt safe and fine and content. In examining those times, it's important to point out that no given day was any good. It was all bad. Stress steeped into every moment, sleeping and waking. But in hindsight, and in the moment itself, there were times that were relatively safe and calm. But then those times would end very abruptly as you came to understand that there was a new terror that you had just come to realize. Upon understanding more deeply the depths of the lockdown terror, you would get used to that level of shittiness until some new, more horrifying terror knocked you out of your already very low standard of equanimity. It all sucked. And I have to remind myself of that. We just passed the year anniversary of Elizabeth breaking her foot. We're coming up on the year anniversary of this lockdown. I have to fight the sense of nostalgia that creeps into my brain and gives this history a sheen of not seeming so bad. But it was bad. For the average person who survived this, Let's acknowledge that not everyone did. There was two categories of terror. There was the stuff that we just had to get used to. And then there was the stuff, the really terrible stuff, that we just couldn't get used to. The stuff we had to get used to 
came to define our new sense of normal. You know, the stuff that we had to acclimate to. Stuff that no human should have to acclimate to, but there we were. This stuff is insidious in that it's the stuff that slowly chisels away at your mental health and leaves you exhausted. But then there's that second category of the stuff that we just couldn't get used to. The stuff we couldn't abide. The heinous stuff that we were just subjected to that just wasn't normal. It was inhumane. It was the stuff that didn't gently attack your mental health. It stabbed at it. It was the stuff that permanently maimed us. The real trauma. We'll get to that stuff later, but first, let's talk about our new reality. The things that we just had to get used to. The endless, insidious routine of lockdown. So the first aspect of the new normal that we were constantly worried about was food. But we've already basically covered that. I think I gave the impression that we were all very food secure in Shanghai after a certain point. But that was not the case. Here's my friend Michael, who lived in Minhang. And the people who lived there seem to always be fairly food insecure. So it's uh, it can be a little stressful. I think probably the most stressful food situation was... Uh... About a week ago, we ran out of fresh vegetables for the very first time in lockdown. After about 38 days, we didn't have fresh vegetables for a day or two. And that was pretty stressful. A month or two into lockdown, actually, someone published a spreadsheet outlining all of the government rations, who was getting the best quality and the most stuff. Actually, <laughs> my district, and specifically my sub-district, was getting the best stuff. We were living pretty well. But places like Minhang, Putuo, places further out in the city, were really, really not getting much at all. The first thing that was potentially dangerous that we had to get used to in this lockdown was the endless day-to-day -day testing. This is my friend Yashu. Doing COVID tests every day, or not every day, but every day or every other day, so so frequently, that, in my opinion, doesn't make a lot of sense because that exposes us to the virus more than we need to. I just counted yesterday, I've done like more than a dozen COVID tests lately. If I'm not positive, why do I need to do it repeatedly? As the lockdown progressed, and so many of us were locked in our houses and couldn't possibly be exposed, the only possible point of exposure for us was the testing itself. My friend Lee couldn't get over this, and I don't blame him. I think the most stress uh, come from uh, getting waiting for the results, especially citywide um, testing. It's going to take about a couple hours, right, to a day to get the results. So not knowing if I am positive or negative, I think that's where the most stress is coming from. Every morning that I woke up, the first thing that I would do was check my test results. Before I even checked the results, though, I would already breathe this sigh of relief because I hadn't gotten a call in the middle of the night from the Chinese CDC informing me that I had tested positive. If I had slept through the night, they weren't coming to get me, obviously. 
after that, I would check my results and obviously they were always negative, but <sighs> so much freaking stress. My friend Lee outlines how testing was just such a hotbed for exposure. But the problem is that after the first second round of testing, they're not fast enough to take the uh, positive cases out of the, uh, the buildings. Um, so next time we do the test, actually there are positive cases and potentially, potentially not confirm uh, positive cases uh, all going down and do the test together. In our building, for example, there are positive cases in one apartment and they haven't transferred them out. The other thing that just led to so much undue stress on the daily was the information that we were getting. The useless information, the incorrect information, the intentionally deceitful information. Here's my friend Jing. These days, the notifications from the street admin, the district admin, the city admin, when this stuff come to me, I can read word by word, like I can understand word by word, but I don't understand the whole thing. I could never understand the whole thing. It's not only this time, but um, I mean, I always have difficulties to understand what policy. When everything comes from killing the virus with all prices, things could go wild easily. It's not the first time in the recent history. What disappointed me is mainly how an individual has been treated. When a power holder doesn't respect a life, you can't expect any mercy from them. We'd constantly be bombarded with official information in the form of official letters that they would post in our Xiaochu. They were wordy and full of information, but it was all information that was so useless. We only had one question. When is this going to be over? But the authorities had no idea. And so they would just bombard us with nonsense. For instance, they'd give us all these useless designations and distinctions. We just received notice in our little community group chat that actually on the 12th, a couple days ago, we were officially designated as one of the quote unquote control zones. There are three tiers of zones that they're like letting out slowly by slowly. We are in the control zone, which means that we are like the most free of all the peoples. That said, on the same notice, it says, don't leave the compound, don't gather in groups, don't go anywhere. So it's no distinction between the way we've already been living for the past, whatever, 10 days. This was just a few days into our lockdown when we got this notice. We still had over two months left of lockdown. They kept doing this to us, giving us these meaningless distinctions and updates. It just felt like a lot of Orwellian newspeak where they would use terms like control area or containment zone to make it seem like there was some sort of progress that we were working towards this eventual unlocking that was to come. But we know what freedom looks like and feels like, and some random new distinction was ultimately meaningless. I, I think my biggest issue with the lockdown has been probably the lack of transparency, um, because we don't really know for how long we will be in lockdown. 
Most times we don't know when COVID tests will be will happen, how many times we need to do it, and、um, until recently we didn't know whether there were positive cases in our building and where were the positive cases. This has been a source of that feeling of uncertainty and security, and also some exhaustion and dissatisfaction and.、Um, I wish we could know what is going to happen to us and what they're thinking, what they might know that we don't know. What's the reason behind all these policies that we might not like? So the innumerable interruptions into our lives. The constant feelings of insecurity for our physical well-being, endless testing, constantly feeling like we were gaslit—that's just the normal stuff. That's the day-to-day mundane terror that eats away at you bit by bit. But then there's the awful stuff, right? The stuff that really shattered your mind. It's important to understand that none of the people that I talked to experienced firsthand any of the terrors. I'm about to go over. Honestly, not that many people did in the grand scheme of things. But we all had to pay attention to all of these things, and we were constantly worried. So this is the really sickening stuff. What's going on? Why, why are you so upset right now? Because there's videos online of them killing dogs and cats, and <laughs> I can't. So. Videos began surfacing of volunteers or workers dressed in full PPE rounding up dogs and cats in the street. There was this video of this dabai, this volunteer, putting cats into a big sack. There must have been nine or ten cats just sadly meowing, stuck inside of this sack. Then there was the video that really wrecked me. In this video. A dabai was using a big stick with pinchers on the end, grabbing and dragging a limp dog by the neck. He lifted it and put it on top of a pile of other seemingly dead dogs. That's the one that broke me and Elizabeth. The reason I think that they were doing this is because they thought that stray animals could be carrying the virus, and thus they needed to euthanize them. Yeah, so it's been a really upsetting days seeing videos from online. Somehow the suffering of people seems understandable. People live complex lives, and people understand to a certain extent what's happening to them. But the the innocence of animals just makes it's just too much for me. I just think of all of the love, the care that I put into raising this little pug. I just think about how unique he is, how much personality he has. I think about how scared he would be if a stranger grabbed him away and did the unthinkable. Then I think about how cold-hearted a person would have to be, how a society would have to have turned you into something so sad to hear an order like this and then go and carry it out. I think about how unthinking, how wanton you'd have to be to give that order. Piling the sweet, innocent, furry little bodies of those dogs in that cart, and dumping them in some garbage somewhere. Jesus! I don't say this to tear at your heartstrings, but to show you how much I really thought about it. 
how much it haunted my dreams for months. To feel that something that you love so much could be torn from your home and murdered in this short-lived campaign, which was quickly amended. One thing that my friend Mike explains here is that there was this issue where pets weren't allowed to come with you to quarantine. So if you tested positive and were taken away, there was a lot of uncertainty as to what would happen to your pet. Um, yeah, just a failure to have a uniform publicized policy of how pets would be dealt with. Um, and that does affect me personally because just it, it really has been the most stressful part of this lockdown. God forbid you had a pet and you were taken to quarantine. If you couldn't get them out to a neighbor or a friend and you were shipped off to a facility, there was a good chance that your pet wouldn't make it. They weren't letting people bring their pets to the Fang Tang. So many of us created backup plans in case the unthinkable were to ever occur. My pet cat Geisha, the scenario of me being moved away could be very risky for her life or for her life being. And about two weeks ago, I joined the, the compound's WeChat group. It's about like the pet owners who trying to back up for each other in case any of us getting uh, moved away. terrified of testing positive and being separated from my baby or even if I was allowed to be with my baby being sent to a camp with an infant videos circulated on WeChat and Twitter of children being separated from parents who tested positive for the virus this is a woman explaining that she, her mother-in-law, and her daughter were sent away to a camp, but her son, who was still breastfeeding, was left at home, away from his mother. There were many videos like this, and everyone with children was obviously freaked out about this. Here's Ginger, a young mother who had to face down this kind of reality. What worried me most while in lockdown was potentially being separated from my baby. I have a six-month-old baby boy born here in Shanghai, and there were rumors going around that they were separating families if a parent tested positive and their child didn't, or vice versa. And the American consulate held a Zoom town hall meeting and confirmed it was happening and that it had happened to American families and that there was nothing that they could do about it. So when I heard those words come out of their mouth, I was really scared. And I can tell you that this was the number one concern for every single person living in China with a child. Uh, my baby is currently still breastfeeding and the thought of him being force-fed formula by some unidentifiable person in a hazmat suit is just a nightmare. She's not just speculating here. There were videos showing hospital nurseries where toddlers and infants were being held with just a few attendants around to take care of them. Uh, 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 
This policy was amended fairly swiftly. It was reversed on April 6th. But again, it's just so unimaginable that anybody thought this was the right thing to do. And with a public who was so mistrustful of the government, it was hard for people to stop worrying about this, even though the policy was reversed. It led people like Sarah to speculate terrible eventualities. I have a three-year-old boy and a six-month-old baby daughter. And I just, I didn't even know, like, which one would be worse, you know? Because, like, the baby is a baby, so it's, like, much more, it would be much more stressful to be away from her just because, like, I would be worried that people wouldn't be caring for, like, she needs a lot more care. But she also wouldn't be as aware of, like, being away from her family, whereas I think for, like, my toddler it would be really damaging uh, and have, like, lasting effects. I mean, probably it would have lasting effects for both of them, but I don't know. This is a video of two women begging medical workers to save a man who has fallen over. They're begging them to take this man to the hospital because he's not breathing. They need to save him. But the medical workers refuse to take him. The policy that everyone had to worry about on every level of society, the policy that actually caused unnecessary deaths, was the prospect of being denied emergency medical attention. God forbid the unexpected happened. We shut down all the medical access. Um, even the emergency rooms during this period, as I said, this is really not good for those people who need, um, who need medical care. It wasn't just emergency treatments that were halted, though. Chronic long-term care was also halted so that hospitals could be used as COVID wards. This is my friend Iga again. People who actually needed to get daily treated in the hospital, you know, people who have... I know, kidney problem, cancer, they actually, or like people who are just waiting for surgery. Wow, it's just really heartbreaking because what is COVID? Like, you get this, yeah, okay, but these are the people who are dying. And I just like always think if you calculate how many people are dying because of this lockdown policy, it's I definitely have outnumbered so much of people who died because of COVID. Even if you had a medical emergency, there were so many other obstacles standing in your way as well. Um, another thing parents were legitimately terrified of was not being able to take their baby to the doctor if they got sick. Um, and if even if a life-threatening emergency happened, you would not be able to get out and just call a cab and go because no cabs were operating. Um, so even if your baby was just a little bit sick, um, parents also were too scared to take their babies to the doctor anyways because, worst case, the baby got tested positive for COVID or one of the parents did, and then they could be separated for God knows how long. 
I just heard the story about this man that had um, abdominal pain and he couldn't get an ambulance and then when he finally did they refused entry into the hospital for him because I guess one of the wings had a lot of positive cases so they told him to go home and just buy some painkillers and eventually he couldn't take the pain anymore and he just jumped to his death if something happens to my baby or my 92 year old grandmother I, I don't know what I would be able to do it's absolutely horrendous. I thought about this a lot during the lockdown. I stressed about this obsessively. Elizabeth had a broken foot, and I realized that there was probably very low risk overall. But if she had gotten a blood clot from the surgery, or she slipped in the shower, I'm not sure what we would have done. And that freaked me out every single day. But what's at the heart of this worry? What's the policy that's the center of all of this, the hub of our wheel of worries? All other worries essentially stemmed from this idea of the central quarantine. If allowed to quarantine in place in our homes, almost all of these worries could have been assuaged. But the policy was to ship everyone off to this place separate them from their family and their community, fill up the hospitals with COVID patients rather than treating more serious problems. The Fang Tang, the quarantine centers, were the real issue, the thing that we all were worried about. Here's Michael. The restrictions and the news about being sent into central quarantine, of which the quarantine facilities seem horrendous. Many of them seem like they're unfinished warehouses and they're not really sanitary. So this idea that just being anywhere near or even in the building of someone who has a positive case will immediately get the entire building and everyone in it um, imprisoned in central quarantine is horrifying. And I find that it's been extremely stressful and that it just makes everything so much worse and that Time and time again, everyone's saying uh, the, the remedy's worse than, worse than the uh, disease. People are not afraid of COVID, they're afraid of the restrictions, they're afraid of being further imprisoned, imprisoned indefinitely. Like I said, lockdown was a sort of cycle. We oscillated between terror and relative peace. It wasn't all awful. We got organized. And in a Stockholm Syndrome sort of a way, we got used to it all. Liz, what do you got going on here? I have an Excel spreadsheet with all of the food that we can cook. I have it planned by day. What else do you want me to say about it? That I'm a nerd? Is that what you want from me? Well, how far have we have, have, we have I have it planned until the 11th. Well, sorry. I have it planned until the 2nd. The 2nd to the 11th, I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> and today's the 14th, yeah? Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. There were actually some nice aspects of lockdown. Oh, the neighborhood exchange. My friend created this neighborhood exchange. You can exchange some of your goods for other stuff, I guess. They've got some instant coffee, which, I don't know, might be all right. 
Ansel, the guy that you met last episode, the guy who I added to our neighborhood watch group, he's so on top of stuff and so well organized that he actually set up an exchange table in our neighborhood for people to exchange goods. He wrote out guidelines so that the table wasn't abused by anybody. By all accounts, it was extremely successful. It ignited a broader sense of good feelings in our Xiaochu. There weren't that many good things in lockdown, but there were a few. And I think the most important one was the sense of community that was fostered in our forced confinement. One way that I personally got in the spirit of community was that I started trading goods with some of the older folks in the neighborhood. It was fun, but then it got really serious. I, I got into a sort of trading war with Jen Ai. It all started when I gave her a big pallet of milk that we got in a delivery. I can't drink milk, so it was literally nothing to me. But Jen, I really took it to heart. I expected absolutely nothing in return, but she gave me all of her apples, literally robbing herself of decent fruit just to repay this debt. It was absurd. I kept trying to refuse her offer, but she wouldn't budge. She refused to be in the red on her cosmic balance sheet. And so all of a sudden, I had a ton of apples and this sense of responsibility that I needed to pay her back again. Then she gave me more good stuff. So I gave her some cooked goods that me and Elizabeth made. And we went back and forth for several rounds. <laughs> it was a little stressful, but in like a really fun way, right? I kept on trying to think of ways to up the ante when Jen Ai inevitably outdid herself. It really brought us closer. I can legitimately say her and I became friends, a friendship that was based on deep embarrassment for being indebted to somebody else. But it was a real friendship nonetheless. In the middle of this lockdown, I also just found myself hanging out a lot with the old people who sat around in the Xiaochu. I started to feel a real kinship with the folks in my neighborhood. At this point in the lockdown, I feel like I really knew everyone, especially the old folks. It started taking me longer and longer to do tasks around the neighborhood because I was constantly stopping to have conversations. It wasn't just me who found this to be true. Everyone I talked to had similar things to say about their community. Here's my friend Jersey Mike. I got to know my neighbors and overwhelmingly, they are incredible, amazing people. Doesn't matter that we don't speak the same language or, or that you know I have a different life experience from them. We became a community and we became quite close. 
And that's something that I never really had growing up. I never had a close-knit community. You know, I had my family and, you know, my immediate and extended family, but I never had a village. And you know what? It was quite nice. I, I really, it, it's something that I would like to continue to have in the future. Hopefully it's not under the same circumstances as lockdown. I, I feel closer to these people than many of the neighbors that I had growing up. Even for people who weren't able to leave their apartment for the entire lockdown, there was still a sense of community. Uh, my upstairs neighbor uh, knew that I really wanted coffee beans and so, but I couldn't figure out how to order them. So she ordered me like a kilogram of coffee beans and then she lowered them down from her window to my window on like a ribbon, like a gift wrapping ribbon. That was really nice. Some of us had to be there through difficult times for people in our community. This is my friend Yang Yang again. Unfortunately, a person died while we were in lockdown. Um, it, it's not because of COVID. It's an elderly person and they had to call ambulance um, one day and the next day the family was sending uh, like help needed in the group chat of our building. Anyway, he was asking if anyone had any candles or incense because they wanted to sort of mourn for the dead. And I had candles and incense and some Buddhist mantra that I used to practice. So I gave some of them to, to them and they were very grateful. And I see other people just dropping off candles and incense. And that was just such a heartwarming moment. So, so far through the series, I think I've really painted the Jue Hui very negatively. And I don't want to take any of that back. But then there are the volunteers. You know, like Jenai, who knocks on my door all the time. They're just our neighbors. They live in our buildings. They take orders from the Jue Hui. But they're part of our community. With the volunteers, like anybody, you know, there are some that are just kind of pawns or or kind of toadies for the Jue Hui. But then there are amazing volunteers who work in our midst. I love Jen Ai, obviously. She's my building volunteer. My my friend Jing, who lives in our Xiaochu, her building volunteer is Zhong Ai, who you met in last episode. And Jing really appreciates her and sees her as a force for good. Our building manager, who's a volunteer as well, she has been very loud but extremely helpful for our building. We like get sufficient supplies because she has been organizing eggs and milk and uh, a lot of um, veggies and uh, group orders from very beginning. This may be hearsay, I couldn't verify this, but I was told that it was Zhong Ai who advocated for us to be tested within the walls of our community. This way, older folks didn't have to walk too far to get tested. This change of us being able to get our tests in our compound meant that we weren't in contact with communities that I know had a lot of positive cases. So that might've really saved our asses. Uh, a friend of mine, Whitney went way above and beyond. Hi, I'm Whitney. I'm originally from Australia and I've been living in Shanghai for seven years now. Her and her partner actually volunteered for their building to help deliver food and do all the miscellaneous tasks that the volunteers do. So as a volunteer in my building, we would have to get geared up head to toe in full PPE. It's sweltering, it's uncomfortable, um, but 
in order to kind of protect our our neighbors um, and also ourselves from any kind of risk of exposure we would have to be geared up all the time. My my partner actually volunteered first. So she got involved first because um, you know, she's Chinese. It was a lot easier for her to um, sign up. But I, I went down with her for her first ever run and I just saw the scale of what needed to be done. And I was like, right, um, next, time, next time something comes in, just let me know. It was really rough. It was one person Per, for, per building. So if you think about it, in one building there are 28 floors. There are eight apartments on each floor. It was a really physical job. Um, um, there's a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of heated conditions um, where you have to constantly stay moving. In the beginning, everyone was incredibly frightened of being um, at any risk of exposure. We would put things um, outside their doors, um, ring the doorbell and literally run away. <laughs> Um, but by the end, people were coming to their doors, greeting us, having a conversation, asking us questions. I think everybody really missed that sense of human connection and that fear slowly dissipated. I've met so many um, amazing neighbors who really restored my faith in humanity. Um, I, I've, I've always had the impression that this city was kind of cold, but this was really like a few months of condensed pure kindness and I think that that is so hard to come across anywhere in the world uh, now. The other aspect of Whitney's volunteering is that she got to see and work with the Jiuwei up close. She saw the more human side of this bureaucracy. I'd gotten the opportunity to get to know um, my local neighborhood committee representative. For her to leave her child at home alone every single day for almost three months for her to go through all of this. Her husband is also a frontline worker. As a family, they've been separated for over two months. Um, and her mother also was you know, dealing with some health issues as well. And I think for someone to have their personal priorities split in so many different directions, but to also have to be responsible for keeping hundreds of people COVID negative, rations delivered, tested on a daily basis. It is a huge logistical feat, but also an incredibly emotional one. And I think sometimes people do react incredibly angrily when they don't know what's happening or they only have one person to go to for answers. And this person who's delivering these answers might not actually have the full picture of what is supposed to happen. I feel like for someone to put aside all of their own personal struggles and personal responsibilities to really serve the community like that is not easy. So I'm, I'm deeply inspired by this person. The Jue Hui is made up of people. People who come and stay in a community that they don't necessarily live in. And they're asked to do the Sisyphean task of managing the COVID outbreak on the front lines. That's admirable. I'm not completely changing my mind about this grid management system. The guy in charge of our Juehue was not kind or charming or particularly thoughtful in his management of our Xiaochu, but it is much more a case-by-case -case basis. There are some who manage their Juehue with more empathy for the people that they are locking down. 
I was so glad to have Whitney as a resource here because she brought me the most important insight, which is that there are people who were resisting the overreaches of local bureaus. I've seen a lot of a lot of people who are local, um, a lot of people who are either from Shanghai or from other cities in China who are really leading leading us through this lockdown, I would say. They were on the front lines volunteering. Um, they were in talks with local government representatives. They were the ones who were really questioning a lot of the um, official documents that we did or did not get. Um, and I think without these people, our lockdown may have drawn out a lot longer and I think we would have stayed in a lot of stickier situations had those people not stood up and asked the right questions. I've had neighbours advocating for medical care when it was at the most difficult time um, to get medical supplies, medicine. I've seen people rallying together to make sure that members of the community who really needed it got access to those basic needs. I've met so many um, amazing neighbours, people who have single-handedly fought for the freedom of hundreds of people just by continuing to ask the right questions. One day when I was like scrolling through Twitter, which I know is a stupid thing to do generally, I saw so many comments and posts all asking why the Chinese weren't protesting during this lockdown. Criticisms like this only reflect an ignorance of the thoroughness of state surveillance in China. People are very afraid to protest. Whitney, who is more privy to certain conversations than I, was able to see how members of her volunteer team pushed back on the overreaches of the Jueihui and made the lives of people in her community objectively and measurably better. That said, there were actually rowdy protests documented through all of this. People weren't just sitting back and letting this happen to them. People broke free of their confinement. Whole neighborhoods rushed the gates and the guards of their compound. Starving people banged pots and pans on rooftops to protest the lockdowns and indicate that they didn't have enough to eat. Anyway, overall, Community was our great collective strength. It kept us sane and made us feel whole and happy. On the contrary to those cruel news that we read and heard, listen like every day, I do feel the warmth from the people around me. What happens in Shanghai has been known already. People trying to help each other to stay alive. Neighbors help each other, youngest to, to assist the elders who don't have the access to the digital world, and so on and so on. You see the humanity, you see the warmth, you see that you are not living in a machine-code world anymore. All I hope is that our neighborhood community stays ever after. It's easy to think of some of the things that I've described here as special. But no, all of this was so standard, so ubiquitous across Shanghai in this lockdown. People really stepped up and were gracious. I said in the last episode that I was wary of my neighbors. I don't feel like that at all anymore. You have to realize though, when I was saying those things, I come from a very paranoid place because I have real trauma about being surveilled. I've actually been actively surveilled when I worked at a school by the administration of the school. When I lived in other places, I've had neighbors that were way less friendly, who ratted me out to authorities. 
China is a place where powerful institutions mobilize people to seek out and punish other people who fall outside the correct way of doing things. And so I do live with a certain sense of paranoia, but I don't feel that way about my neighbors at all anymore. I love all of them. In a China that I've argued has become a more and more fractured place with a people that have become more isolated. This was a new dawn of unprecedented good feelings for your neighbors. The closeness that this brings gives us a sense of strength. This is one of the biggest unintended consequences of the lockdown, and it should not be underestimated. So much about modern society, especially the surveillance state in China, pushes for us to be disaligned. Like some giant prisoner's dilemma, we're all worried and wary of the other. But some of that feels remedied by the genuine fondness we started to feel, knowing that it was us who were looking out for each other and taking care of each other. For me, the most important connection I made was with Jenna IE. In small ways, she looked out for me and showed me love. I think my fondness for her in some ways was filling a hole in my heart. My grandmother passed a few years ago, right before COVID broke out. And I miss that kind of relationship that I had with my grandmother. Denai lives with her husband and her son. I've met them. Her husband sometimes accompanies her on her duties as our building volunteer. She told me that her husband's mind and body does not work so well anymore. I've seen him. He has shakes and he can't remember things. She didn't specify, but he seems like he has Parkinson's. I recognize this because my Nanu has the same symptoms. Her son is severely developmentally challenged. Jenai has to take care of her son and her husband all on her own. And she has her own health problems. She had a fall a few years ago and had to get surgery. She hasn't really walked correctly ever since. She would often reassure Elizabeth that getting plates and screws put in your bones isn't so bad and that Elizabeth's foot would eventually heal. Anyway, she dealt with all of this and did her volunteer duties without a single complaint. I'm so honored to know Mrs. Jen, and I'm so glad to call her a friend. I also came to learn that Jen Ai has another son as well. She never said an unkind word about her other son, but I got a sense that he wasn't really there for his family. It kind of made me a little bit mad because I came to know Jen Ai and I saw how wonderful and good-natured she is. How could she have a son that would neglect her so badly? The irony, of course, is that her other son, that you know, that's me to my family. I have been neglecting my family. Over the past year or so, I've been unkind and uncharitable to my family. And now there was this rift there. I was righteously mad about something. But in the broader sense, did it really matter? Lockdown really drove home the certainty that we don't have a lot of time, especially with our parents. I didn't want to be like Jen Ai's other son, the son who's not there when his family needs him. The rift that I had with my family probably had some specific origin. 
But I think it was more projection on my part than anything else. I hadn't been there in the end when my grandmother died, and I hadn't really forgiven myself for that. I was sad and hurt. Luckily, through this lockdown, I had Denai, who was decent and kind to me, and reminded me how important family is. Community vibes were undeniably strong, and they gave us a new sense of purpose in our aimless, stressful lockdown lives. But at the end of the day, when you've done what you can for the people around you, the melancholy really starts to set in. The strange dichotomy of our existences were that we had found this new sense of community, but yet we felt a deep feeling of isolation. Lockdown Journal, April 25th. I don't feel anything anymore. It's weird. Elizabeth's like, I'm feeling bad today. And I'm like, really? I don't feel anything. <laughs> Which is maybe a deeper um, feeling of depression than I was currently going through. Because I don't. I don't feel anything. I don't feel stressed today. I'm not feeling depressed today. I'm not feeling sad. I'm literally feeling nothing. It's just this, like numbness of it all the boredom is so real nothing feels like it has any meaning anymore and it makes me feel like a certain rage as well because it's just like i get there's there's some the human part of me deep down inside is so irritated and angry that i don't feel anything i don't know where my mental health is right now i don't know i'm having a hard time gauging if i'm doing okay or not the isolated feeling that you have in lockdown really has stages to it and that first stage is this feeling of boredom here's my friend lily and i was i was like seeing this endless waiting i don't know what people were doing and what all the suffering was all about um so i remember this greek figure in greek mythology uh, which was a hero, I can't remember his name, like pulling this huge stone, this rock above the hill. And every day, every day, the rock will fall and will fall and he has to push it upwards. All the tests just give me this feeling. We are doing this thing, you know, just like day in, day out, day in, day out, and it's all renewed. When I hear um, like a volunteer using a loudspeaker saying, come downstairs, like to do the COVID test and I was like allergic to his sound. I feel so disgusted. The lockdown was certainly Sisyphean. Any given day was the same as the last, especially as we began to edge towards the end of that first month. A big factor here was that lockdown really felt endless. They kept moving the goalpost over and over and over and it compounds your sense of disaffection. The powerlessness of it really wears you down. And I feel that's probably the most stressful thing that's really been getting to me is not realizing what's been chipped away day after day until it suddenly hits you and you just feel paralyzed. It's really hard to focus on a single task, just get it done, or to really try to put any amount of energy into anything, whether it be my work or my creative side or exercise. 
it's really hard to stay focused. So every day when you wake up, you just hear sad news. There was a time that I wake up crying because I, I hear or I see the videos that、uh, the things that they happening, and it it definitely doesn't help my mental health because you don't have freedom. You can only stay home. All the information you hear, they all bad, and you don't have any good news. And day by day, you feel like, oh, another day going on. You know, tomorrow is another day, but tomorrow is the same day. Like, what's there? Nothing's there.、Um, you kind of like feel hopeless. What was really important during this lockdown is we started reflecting on the last couple years here in China. These years haven't been normal. Even when we were free and we were not worried about COVID, there was this hubristic triumph we were all supposed to feel after the first round of lockdowns in 2020 that we had gotten through this and all these problems that the rest of the world were facing. We were free from. We were free to roam around. But there was something so f***ed up about those two years. They were built on a lie. I was thinking of Dr. Li Wenliang. One of the whistleblowers of COVID in Wuhan, who died of the disease early 2020, I felt my desperation. When I realized that nothing fundamentally improved over the past two years, but even worse,、um, I guess it's from policymaking. It's from how we psychologically getting prepared, and、uh, how people's attitude or understanding. Of such kind of pandemic situation, I guess we had that kind of feeling that we got away from it already, especially during 2021. I cried first time during the lockdown on that evening after I went to see Dr. Li's Weibo. Millions of notes and comments have been posted since his death. I read all those, well, like many of those comments and posts. It gets me very emotional because everything is so politically sensitive in China. There is no collective way to mourn. Doctor Li Wenliang has become a symbol of that collective mourning that we are denied here in China. We were so encouraged to quickly forget the bad and just move on that when we finally now have had time to think about it and breathe, we're hit with this intense feeling of loss. All of us had personal points of breaking, and feelings of loss. We were all so on edge that it felt like we were all on hair trigger mode.、Um, I was making yogurt,、uh, you know, I was cleaning out one of my yogurt pots, and I cracked one of the jars just by accident. You know, I was、uh, cleaning with a、uh, like a sponge on a stick, and it just went right through the yogurt pot. And I remember staring at this broken glass in my sink, and my first thought was, "I can't get another one. I have lost that pot forever, and there is no getting another one. And that is valuable protein that I am not going to be able to have." And from there, the whole weight of everything just opened up. When I broke that jar, I cracked. I've been trying to keep calm. These days, I've been sleep deprived. With the lockdown on top of it, it's really getting to me. Every time I tried to rest during the day, 
it's quite hectic here with people arguing or people yelling, telling people to go do the tests, um, yelling in the megaphones or just yelling in general. I had been so sleep deprived for a couple days and I finally wanted to sleep early and um, then there was an order coming in at 10.30 p.m. So, and it's really been a tough day today. I was cooking and I was so sleep deprived. I broke the only jar of starch I had and I was trying to save it and it just really ruined my day because I don't know if I'll be able to get more. We're not meant to be locked in cages and it really gets to you. I dropped some q-tips the other day and I screamed. <laughs> I just, it, it, it just, uh, it was like the straw that broke my back. Such little things these days could just set me off. The often unspoken character here in this whole narrative is death. There was death's gloomy shadow haunting us, a specter lurking in our subconscious, becoming more and more intrusive as we winded down this dark spiral. Lots of dreams around death. Very dark, very dark. And they just, then they niggle and they sit with you all day like a cloud. I had my breaking point as well. It was really bad. My mental breakdown started just the cracking of the dam. I started to feel things. Really big, scary emotions. The first inkling that I was really unwell was one day when I was doing research for this podcast. And so I just went back on Weibo and Twitter and I saw some of the stuff that's going around on Twitter and I just saw this video. Tens and dozens of people like jumping off roofs. And it's just like, it says that it's about the lockdown and I don't know if it's about the lockdown. They could be old videos or whatever, but it's just like, it's too much. <laughs> just people like jumping off their roofs. <coughs> people just like not wanting to be like taken away or carted off. And then they're just being, they're just jumping off roofs. <laughs> it's just so awful. <laughs> That was so awful. But there was also just the pure and constant pressure of lockdown and documenting all of this terrible stuff that really started to feel so crushing. There was a bigger incident that really led me to break. I'm calling our local bureau because they have chained the people of Building 6 in their building again. And apparently somebody on the third floor got a positive antigen test. I'm sick of this shit. I'm sick of... It's it's illegal. And it's so careless. Like, what are they supposed to... Who are they supposed to call if there's an emergency? If there's a fire? Where are they supposed to go? They're going to get fried up inside their building because these idiots lock them in their, in their building. They were going to lock down the people of Building 6 again. The reason I was so amped, the reason I was so mad here is that actually earlier in the week, I saw a video of a fire breaking out in Pudong. Yeah. 
You can hear people screaming for their lives because they are locked in. They're trapped inside of their building. That was the ultimate thing I was freaked out and worried about. The Bureau's line was busy, so I went out to Building 6 to stop them from chaining the door. I was livid. I was shaking. My poor friend Anna, who was chained in her building last episode, was going to be chained into her building again, and I couldn't take it. Standing. Sorry, I'm standing outside number six. What's today? The 30th? Yeah. April 30th. Yeah, 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 yeah. April 30th. I saw Ansel standing outside waiting for the Jue Hui representative to come by with the padlock. I wanted to confront them. And they locked the door. I just called the bureau and they acted, they acted dumb. They just were like, what? What? What are you talking about? I'm just pissed. I'm really pissed. You can hear me and Ansel are nervous. I want to see if the aunt's school, when she came down, they're going to lock it again or they're going to leave it open. Well, it's against all kinds of laws, actually. If you really look close, it's going to... Finally, Jue Hui Zhang arrived with a lock, and I mustered all of the composure that I could to confront him. I tell him what he's doing is illegal, and he tells me that within China, this is not illegal. There's actually an old man who's walking by, and he agrees with me. I suggest that they just put a big sticker over the door, something that they can and have been doing in other places that have had positive cases. But he says essentially, if someone were to escape, would you go and track them down? Which is just like a ridiculous thing to say, but there you have it. Anna comes down and starts talking with Mr. Zhang as well. You can hear the chain rattling. Mr. Zhang, always the reasonable one, didn't lock them up. I went back several times that day to make sure, and I texted Anna. They never locked that door again during our lockdown. It was a small triumph, but the amount of composure I had to gather for the exchange so as to not get mad. The amount of stress was just too much. I didn't let out a scream or anything like that. I went home cool as a cucumber, but then it started to happen. I'm just like, I can't, I can't, my heart won't rest. Like I'm just like, not doing well. Oh Jesus. It started as a twitch or a tremor. And then I could feel my heart pounding in my chest, thumping so hard. My breathing was out of control. Oh God, I just can't seem to calm down. I can't think, I can't get everything out of my head right now. I'm just like, I'm just having a drink and trying to calm down a little bit. But as fast as it flashed on, it flashed off. That was Friday night, but then Sunday night it happened. So I was sitting on the couch, 
watching TV with Elizabeth when all of a sudden a thought appeared in my head like a singular cockroach coming out of the bottom of a cabinet, crawling across the kitchen floor. It was ugly and shiny and fascinating. The thought that crossed my mind was a small whisper. Clay, you're trapped. You're really trapped. And you're going to die. When it crossed my mind, I almost laughed out loud at how ridiculous it was. It wasn't like an active thought in my mind. It came from somewhere else in my mind. But then, suddenly, there were two of these roaches on the kitchen floor of my mind. Clay, Clay, you're, you're trapped, trapped, and you're, you're going to die. I felt that panic that you feel, like when you're in the pool and you get stuck underwater because there's like something obstructing your way to the surface. Four, eight, 16, 32, 64. An entire infestation of intrusive thoughts crawled all over my mind with all sorts of apocalyptic warnings. And you're going to die. None of these thoughts taken one-on-one were particularly irrational. One was saying, if you get hurt, you can't go to the hospital. That was true. There were no hospitals that would take me if something went wrong. One said I was trapped. Also true. Those irrational thoughts warped into sort of existential thoughts that were less rational in this particular situation. I was trapped. I was really trapped. Not just trapped in my compound or in my apartment, which I was, but trapped in my own mind, in my own body. The constraints of my body were a prison. The frustration of being trapped inside a tired body, imperfect and fragile, so easily broken. To be trapped inside of a mind that could hold you back, that could break you down, even if you are in good health. My mind was breaking me and I felt trapped. It's all a big prison. Still, I was sitting on my couch and I realized that Elizabeth was staring at me. Are you okay? That's when I noticed how cold I was. Physically cold to the touch and sweaty. I was stiff as a board. My legs, my arms were in the clutches of like rigor mortis. Each time I moved, my joints felt like they were going to shatter like ice. That's when Elizabeth commented on my breathing, which was elevated. I shot up and started woodenly pacing the floor, letting Elizabeth know that I was freaking the fuck out. She stayed calm and tried to comfort me, but the part of my mind that kind of acts as the conductor was not fully in charge at this point. I kept thinking I was dying, which sent my mind into a downward spiral into darkness. As Elizabeth guided me to the bathroom and helped me undress, my mind became a battleground of competing, terrible thoughts. I don't remember getting in the shower, but suddenly warm water was raining down on me, and I was sitting naked on the floor of my shower. The battle in my mind was giving way to a cold and beautiful void. Pitch black, nothingness. Why battle? Why fight? Why not just let the cold, dark mother embrace you? Erase you? No more pain. No more stress. 
just cut your wrists and let your blood and your consciousness spiral down the drain. Just let go. Just leave this all behind. Please just leave it behind. You're so tired. I knew that I had to die. I wanted to die. How could I take any more of this? And suddenly I was just so tired. For what seemed like an eternity, I just lay there quietly, my eyes closed. Just let go. Just leave this all behind. Please just leave it behind. You're so tired. But then all of a sudden, panic struck me like a lightning bolt. I knew I didn't actually want to die. It was just my brain, or part of it at least, that couldn't take it. The conductor of my mind was screaming at the top of his lungs that he didn't want to die. But whatever had taken over me wanted to grab the kitchen knife and just end it. Over and over and over again, I kept playing out the scene, grabbing the knife, slicing fast, over and over and over and over again. I started screaming. Oh, oh, no, please, no, no! This was my mind cannibalizing itself. As I lay there in the shower, curled up on the floor in a tight, pale little ball with my eyes squeezed shut, my mind swirling in some biblical nightmare, I heard the voice of my mother. Her voice cracked through like lightning, searing away the darkness. It's okay, Clay. I've been through this too. You just have to let yourself feel sorrow. And like a cleansing fire, these words eradicated the darkness. The conductor was suddenly back at his post, and my thoughts slowed. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to die. I want to struggle on and see how all of this shit plays out. There were so many beautiful things in the world. So many people that I loved. Who's going to take care of Elizabeth and BB? I still owe Jenai some fruit. As suddenly as my madness struck me, it evaporated. And I was just overwhelmed with a much more welcome emotion. Sadness. I was weeping. My grandmother had passed. I hadn't cried. My cousin had passed. I hadn't cried. COVID came. Lockdowns came. Depression hit so hard for a year and a half, and I was numb. I'd been locked down for 30 days straight at that point. I didn't know it yet, but this was only the halfway point of the lockdown. And for the most part, I'd felt nothing at all. And I certainly hadn't wept. The sorrow was years of sorrow that had been locked down under a thick callus of a hardened heart. But all of it burst forth and I cried like a f***ing banshee, crying so hard my lungs, my guts started to hurt. I couldn't believe all of the suffering we'd lived through. I couldn't believe the injustice, the indignity of being trapped in my house. I cried and I cried. Elizabeth turned off the water and helped wrap me in a towel. As it turns out, the words from my mother that were like my deus ex machina were not some higher power channeling my mother's voice. But it was, in fact, my mother. Elizabeth had put her on speakerphone, and my mom was speaking to me. 
I was still jittery and shaky and my mind was still full of lingering bad thoughts. So I sent an emergency message to the neighborhood watch group to see if anybody would just walk around with me until I felt calm. Ivan and UA, my next door neighbors, came to the door immediately. And Anna and Ansel came as well to give me a big hug and make me feel better. Anna broke out of her building's lockdown to come make sure I was okay. Ansel suggested that we go on a walk. So Anna, Ansel, and I walked around our block over and over and over again. I checked the pedometer on my phone later, and we walked nearly 10 miles, and we stayed out till nearly 3.30 in the morning. We just walked and joked and walked. In those moments, I felt like nothing had happened. I, I felt so much better just being out of my house, walking around on the block, even though it was technically illegal to do so. But I was immediately jerked back into the bleak reality of my situation when I got home. I saw that the magnetic knife rack in our kitchen was vacant of knives. Elizabeth had hid them and gone to sleep. In that moment, I knew I wouldn't do anything violent or dangerous to myself. After I'd taken my walk, it really felt like it made no sense at all for me to kill myself. But mere hours before, it had been as inevitable as the sun rising. There it was, that empty knife rack, laid bare as evidence of my total loss of control. I'm 100% sure that the person on the floor of my shower was going to kill themselves, and I'm 100% sure that that person is so far from who I am. Man, perspective is tough. You know, when you have perspective, you realize there's always people who have it worse than you. I mean, I had a break from reality just from what I went through. I had a full-blown panic attack, but I didn't really experience anything. Nothing compared to those people who were locked away in those camps, those fangtang. But you'll have to wait till next episode to hear their stories. You've been listening to Strangers in China. living in the United States, you can just dial 988 for the suicide prevention hotline. If you are living in Shanghai or in China somewhere and you need help, you can dial 021-6279-8990. Again, in America, that's 988. And in China, 021-6279-8990. Nine zero, Get help. I promise you that there's more to life. This podcast is dedicated to those of you anywhere in the world who are completely alone during a lockdown. I wouldn't have had the strength to survive this on my own. This podcast is also dedicated to those who didn't make it. Please know that you are missed and loved.
Feel free to reach out to me if you have any stories you'd like to record and share on the podcast. Also, feel free to reach out and just share if you're going through a hard time. Email us at strangersinchinaofficial at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Strangers in China and on Twitter at Stranger in China. Visit our website at strangersinchina.com. Strangers in China is part of the Seneca Network, powered by The China Project. Strangers in China's theme song is Analytical Skeletons. Other music in this episode is by... <laughs> Bear with me, there's a lot here. Moss Heim, Lakey-inspired, TDP Experimental, Hatterin, Barry, Ginger Pitcher, Andre from Pagefire, Purple Cat, Jawswin, Terry Skills, Dovey, Lofi, Artist Unknown 2, Dream, Dojex, Taz Lazuli, Cesus, XXIUK, Jays, Tritachion, Ye Old Experimental Junk, Inaya, and Trey. <laughs> All right, tune in for the next episode. Uh, hopefully, uh, I'll get it done faster than I got this one done. I love you, everybody. Mm-hmm.